Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. When English explorer Captain John Smith sailed up the Chesapeake Bay as far as Port Deposit, Maryland, which is just 10 miles from Pennsylvania in 1608, he found an area teeming with fish and wildlife, clear, pristine water, and forests covering the shores. That's considered a time when the Chesapeake Bay may have been at its healthiest. More than 400 years later, the bay is about one-third as healthy. That's according to the latest report card from the Chesapeake Bay Foundation. The good news, though, from the 2016 State of the Bay report is the health of the bay is improving. To discuss the Bay Report Card today, we're joined by William Baker, who is president of the Chesapeake Bay Foundation. Will Baker, welcome to the program. Thank you very much, Scott. Glad to be here. And Harry Campbell, executive director of the Chesapeake Bay Foundation here in Pennsylvania. Harry, welcome back to the show. Good morning, Scott. Thanks. If you have a question or a comment, 1-800-729-7532 is the number to call, or send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. I'll tell you what, um, Will, when I can get a uh, Captain John Smith reference into uh, my introduction, I'm all for it. But, uh, you know, when I, when, I had that, when I wrote that introduction, I got to think thinking that you know someone hearing that may have mixed feelings that uh, you know 400 years ago the bay was in pristine condition uh, maybe the healthiest it's ever been and here we are in uh, 2017 maybe a third as healthy as uh, you know if you go by your numerical grading system but still an improving situation it's unrealistic to think that we ever could get back to that 100 percent isn't it Absolutely, Scott. You you basically uh, said what I wanted to say. Uh, well, then I don't you know, know why I asked the question. <laughs> I should just have nice short questions. <laughs> the, uh, you know, we used to be asked so many times, how's the Bay doing? And back in the 90s, we decided to do a report card. And we said, let's set what where the bay is today versus where it was when there was only were only 44,000 native americans in the watershed there're now about 19 million of us so john smith's bay was the ultimate pristine bay we'll never get back to that but we should be able to get part of the way there and the score today is 40 is 34 34 out of a perfect 100 and it's getting better and our goal is to get to a 40 by 2025. If we were ever to get to a 70, that would be worldwide headlines. That that would be absolutely the best. Now, you talked about uh, starting this report card back in the 90s, but this effort to clean up the bay began even well before that. How far has the Chesapeake Bay come in the last 20, and I will say, 30 years? Sure. And our organization is celebrating our 50th anniversary this year. So we've been at this for a while. I would say that in the early 80s, things really started to get um, uh, mainstream in terms of the political support to save the Bay. And that's when Maryland, Pennsylvania, and Virginia, the three primary Bay states, got together and said, we're going to do this. So where are we? Uh, I'd say we've improved by about 20% in that time. Uh, we'd like to be much better, but it's, a, it's going in the right direction, and it's been sustained. We're seeing more oysters, more crabs, more clear water, more underwater grasses, and all of the tributary rivers, the water quality in Pennsylvania, for instance, are contributory to that improvement downstream. So what's good for Pennsylvania waters, what's good for Western Virginia, Western Maryland, is good for the bay downstream. Harry Campbell, you know, I, I want to touch on uh, a lot of the specific areas in which uh, Will mentioned, uh, but, you know, talking about the states that are involved in the Chesapeake Bay cleanup, Pennsylvania, though, in the report, gets its own special mention. Why? Well, the Susquehanna River, which actually flows right through the mid-state here and is a dominant uh, part of our landscape and part of our communities, quite frankly, is the largest source of freshwater entering into the Chesapeake Bay. And in fact, half of Pennsylvania actually drains to the Chesapeake Bay through rivers and tributaries that feed not only the Susquehanna River, but the Potomac River as well and some other small watersheds. And so Pennsylvania has a demonstrable, significant impact on the health and condition of the Chesapeake Bay. And that's why it got that special attention in the report. Okay, card. well, my, my question is, is 
you know, in previous uh, report cards, did Pennsylvania get that special mention? Or is there a reason in particular that Pennsylvania gets uh, a few more headlines? Yes, there is one other reason. And as it pertains to the overall Bay efforts that Will had mentioned, that is really seeing returns on the investments over the last several decades in clean water investments. We're seeing benefits to the Chesapeake Bay. But Pennsylvania has not kept up to the pace on which it's promised through various types of blueprints and plans that it's come up with. So with the most recent being the Chesapeake Bay Clean Water Blueprint, in which Pennsylvania and the other Bay states developed specific plans to meet what's known as a total maximum daily load, or the scientific answer to how much pollution is too much in terms of water quality. And the Bay states and Pennsylvania came up with a plan as to how they're going to reduce their fair share of pollution. And Pennsylvania hasn't kept pace with those promises over the last several years. And that challenge is before us. But today's message is that we're starting to really see the returns on those investments that we have made. The plan is working. The science is telling us that it is working. Now, when you say that Pennsylvania is not get, keeping pace, in what areas? Because, you know, there, there's more than just, this is not a simple thing. Mm-hmm. There's more than just one area that goes into this. Right. Anything that we do on the land, anything that you and I do every day affects the health and condition of the rivers and streams in Pennsylvania, as well as the Chesapeake Bay, ultimately. The primary source identified as being uh, the pollution contributors to the Chesapeake Bay is agricultural activities in Pennsylvania. We have over 33,000 individual farms within the Bay portion of Pennsylvania alone. Uh, So it's a diverse community with a lot of needs in terms of addressing the pollution loads from those activities. And in fact, uh, there's more work to be done, certainly, the pace is, is not sufficient. We have roughly 6,700 miles of impaired streams due to agriculture right here in Pennsylvania alone. But that is one of the reasons why uh, Pennsylvania was identified specifically in that in that report. I mean, yesterday, and I don't want to, I'm not looking to create any kind of he said, she said controversy here. I just want to play something for you. Yesterday, I spoke with Mark O'Neill of the Pennsylvania Farm Bureau at the Farm Show. He talked about a recent Penn State study that said farmers are not getting credit for what they've done. Let's uh, listen to this. Pennsylvania farmers have done many conservation projects on their farm, things they've spent a lot of their own money on to improve waterways, to improve water that flows into the Chesapeake Bay as well as waterways right here in Pennsylvania, but they've never received credit for it. Harry, your response to that? Yeah, so what they're referencing is a Penn State survey that was sent out to 20,000 farmers within the Bay watershed. 7,000 of those responded. And what they found was that there were practices, conservation practices that farmers were doing that weren't being tallied, if you will, uh, in the state ledger when they report this information to the to the Bay Program partners. Yeah, as Mark said, they were using yep. how much money came from the, 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 the federal government right. to measure, you know, that went to farms to measure what farmers had done. That's right. And 7,000 of those folks actually responded and included information that... Uh, you know, it was was substantial. And what we don't know is what it actually means in terms of the water quality and the pace of reduction that has to go through a process. Uh, The survey report indicated that that this is existing based on that. And then the next steps is to actually accept they verified that information. And now the next steps is to integrate it into the Bay program model and see what it looks like in terms of water quality reductions. But again, we have uh, through stream assessments by the Pennsylvania Department of Environmental Protection, 6,700 miles, the leading source of stream impairment in Pennsylvania is agriculture. So while these practices may be on the ground, we know that there's more work to be done. And so that we just need to keep continuing that pace. We welcome that news. That's great news. And it's indicating that these are these practices are being accepted more than we actually realized mm-hmm. in the agricultural community. And we're going to talk more about that in just a moment. But, Will, I want to get back to you and the overall uh, Bay Report card itself. What this issue brings up is the source of the information that you use and have used over the years in measuring, in scoring the different areas on the report card or in the report card. Right. And, and Scott, uh, let me um, give you a little bit of a regional perspective on the conversation you and Harry were just having. 
there are two basic sources of pollution. One comes out of a pipe. That's called a point source because you can literally point to it. And the other is called non-point source because it runs off the land. All of the states in the watershed, there are six states, we're talking primarily about Maryland, Pennsylvania, and Virginia, but all of the states have had difficulty controlling and reducing pollution from the non-point, which, which runs off the land. Pennsylvania has the increasingly difficult job because most of their pollution is from non-point source, the most difficult. Whereas Maryland and Virginia made great gains by upgrading sewage treatment plants and other discharges. So they've gotten a lot of credit for doing not necessarily the least expensive. In fact, sometimes it's more expensive, but perhaps the easiest because it's a technological fix to a plant, uh, a, a treatment plant. It's not, it's not surprising, therefore, that Pennsylvania is, quote-unquote, behind on reaching their goals because they've had to deal with the most difficult source of pollution. But we're seeing in this administration and in leadership from the General Assembly, Senators Alloway, Yaw, Representative Everett, and in the, in the governor's office, Secretaries McDonald, Redding, and Dunn, all of them are agreeing there that we, they need to do more and they're committed to doing it, and we just are very optimistic that things are moving in the right direction. We're very grateful, and we do, you know, remember that it's good for Pennsylvania waters as well as the bay downstream. Mm -hmm. So getting back to my other question, though, what are, is the source of uh, the information that you use that uh, uh, you use to score the uh, report card? Uh, right out of the scientific world. So... For instance, the extent of underwater grasses in the bay, that comes right off of an annual survey that's done by aerial surveillance. They, the scientists feel they have accuracy down to almost the square meter for underwater grass coverage. The same with things like water clarity, the abundance of oysters and blue crabs. These are all scientific data that we are simply reporting on. Mm -hmm. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Smart Talk is supported by Capital Blue Cross, providing health care coverage accepted by doctors and specialists in all 50 states. More information is available at capbluecross.com. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by the Pinnacle Health Breast Cancer Center's team, who now offer hidden scar breast cancer surgery. This is a new approach to achieving optimal cosmetic results after breast cancer surgery. More information is available at pinnaclehealth.org phbcc. We're talking about the health of the Chesapeake Bay today with the Chesapeake Bay Foundation. Will Baker is president of the Chesapeake Bay Foundation, and Harry Campbell is executive director of the Chesapeake Bay Foundation's Pennsylvania office. We uh, have a lot of stake here in uh, Pennsylvania, obviously, when you talk about the Susquehanna River and the, the watershed, the streams, the rivers that run into the Susquehanna. Uh, this is something, obviously, that uh, is great importance, importance to all those listening here today. If you have a question or a comment, give us a call. 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at WITF.org. You also can leave a question or comment on WITF's Facebook page. Also on Twitter. Our Twitter handle is uh, at SmartTalkWITF. Again, that phone number is 1-800-729-7532. All right. In the report card itself, you assign a numerical score to each of 13 areas and then a letter grade. The highest grade is in the fisheries area where rockfish had an A-, minus. actually it was the only A. And I should mention those three areas are pollution, habitat, and uh, fisheries. So, uh, rockfish, uh, let's start off on a positive note here, Will. Tell me about rockfish or striped bass, as many people refer to them. Well, Scott, when I first started running Chesapeake Bay Foundation in 1982, the rockfish or striped bass was darn near commercially extinct in the bay. And Maryland and then Virginia and most of the states up and down the Atlantic seaboard because the Chesapeake is the birthplace for 90% of all rockfish or striped bass taken from North Carolina to Maine. 
they all put in a, a moratorium on the catch of striped bass rockfish, what we call rockfish. And that worked beautifully. Within about six years, the fishery was reopened. Uh, controls to make sure they weren't re uh, overfished once again were put in place. And it's one of the great success stories um, of the modern environmental era. The, the return of striped bass rockfish to the Chesapeake Bay and therefore to the entire, mid entire Atlantic coast from Maine to North Carolina. Why is it important to talk about uh, striped bass or rockfish? I mean, I, I look when I see the, the fisheries area, I see that you're grading rockfish, blue crabs, oysters, and shad. Uh, you know, there are so many different... Uh, you know, different kind of uh, underwater wildlife uh, in the Chesapeake Bay. Why those four? Because these are the ones I like the most. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a scientific <laughs> answer for you. <laughs> no, no. no, these these are the iconic bay species. Sure, we could have picked a dozen, but we wanted to keep the overall list to a reasonable amount. And these are all species which require clean water and healthy habitat and sound scientifically based fisheries management to thrive. So they really have been um, viewed historically as critical to the region and the scientific community which has looked at this report card for many years has, uh, has never criticized that choice, those, those choices. Blue crabs showed the biggest improvement and of any of the areas. Now I'm assuming that this is being measured against your last report card two years ago. But uh, blue crabs were up uh, 10 points in your score. What happened with blue crabs? Hallelujah, brother. <laughs> yeah, for those yeah. of us who like crabs, you know. Yeah, <laughs> you know, all the signs in, in south-central Pennsylvania, uh, hot crabs and cold beer, it's, it's a regional <laughs> delight. So, so you know, blue crabs are very short-lived, and that means that you can have a pretty dramatic fluctuations even year to year. We do this report card every two years because you just don't get many changes in most of the indices on a year-to-year -year basis. But blue crabs are one where you can. And so what we've seen in the last two years is, is really truly a dramatic improvement. We think it has to do with more underwater grasses, which is really where blue crabs hide from predators. Also, better fisheries management and overall better water quality. Uh, it's, a, it's a very positive sign, but I would say the blue crab is the most um, variable. So you will see bigger changes in blue crabs from year to year than other species. And just, I, I hope that, uh, you know, I'm sure our listeners uh, were able to uh, clarify just what you had to say, how all these things are interrelated. I mean, we're not just talking, when you talk about, uh, you know, an increased population of blue crabs, we're not just talking about it because we like blue crabs. When you talk about clear water, you know, more underwater grasses, that means that uh, that it, it, the bay is healthier in itself. So when you're hearing, uh, you know, parts of uh, the report card, think about what is influencing some of those things. Uh, you know, Harry, actually all the areas showed improvement or stayed the same except one, and that was forested buffers. Um, it still got one of the higher scores, but First, explain what a forested buffer is and why there was a bit of a decrease or, uh, you know, in, in the uh, quality of forested buffers. Sure. Forested buffers, that's a term of art, if you will. It's I a know, fancy I term know. for basically saying streamside forests. Yeah, yeah. And trees are one of the most fundamental things that we can do to help improve our environment, whether it be the air, the water, even our quality of life. And when they're alongside streams, they actually help reduce pollution so effectively, so cost-effectively, that they outstrip in terms of their ability to preserve and restore healthy rivers and streams, any other practice almost that we have available to us. And so they are a critical practice, and one of the reasons why they are called out exclusively in this fashion within this report. And unfortunately, the pace of implementation, for a variety of reasons that we could probably spend a whole show on, has slowed down when it was actually uh, needed to speed up. 
and in Pennsylvania and the other Bay states as well. The pace of implementation of streamside force or force of buffers had slowed down. And in some cases, there's, there's information to indicate that in, we're actually losing some existing buffers in certain areas. So while we were trying to preserve, tried to actually put in and plant more trees alongside streams, we're simultaneously losing them. And as a result, uh, the ultimate decision was made that that score, therefore, had to remain at least the same in this report card because of the lack of momentum, the slowing down of the pace, and the potential loss of existing buffers. When you say essentially the same, it did go down one point. Yeah. I would think that, that forested buffers planting trees, uh, you know, just from my own observation, you know, along streams, along waterways here in Pennsylvania, I see so many new trees planted. Um, that that would be one of the easier ways to help to uh, you know improve the the quality of waterways and the bay ultimately. It is one of the easier ways. There are a lot of programs also that are built around helping to uh, design and install those. And we work with uh, farmers every day, our restoration staff. We have six staff throughout the Pennsylvania portion of the watershed doing this work type of work every day. And it is one of the easier practices. It's certainly the one of the most cost-effective practices. You get the most bang for your buck in terms of local as well as regional water quality, flood protection, cleaner air, wildlife, habitat, a myriad of environmental benefits come from this one singular practice. And so it, it is one of the fundamental core practices and why it's concerning that it went down one point and that momentum had slowed down over the last several years. Why would it go down? I mean, just what I could think of is land use, you know, maybe development, something like that. Uh, what would you think? Well, God, can, yeah, can I, can yeah, I go, ahead, in well, go ahead. Yeah, so, so this is one where Virginia and Maryland get a bit of a black eye, and, and maybe Pennsylvania gets a, a hall pass. The voracious pace of development, and especially in Maryland and, uh, and Virginia, is what's cutting into the, the forested buffers and and that's just that's just a fact of life and it's it's such a shame as as any fisherman or hunter will tell you you know having good vegetated cover on the land is just critical to healthy fisheries and abundant wildlife mm -hmm. right, let's move on to some other areas nitrogen is still a major issue and this comes into uh, the pollution area will uh, tell me about nitrogen I mean this is something that has been a challenge since the very beginning when plans were developed to clean the bay uh, what about nitrogen It has a very low score in fact an F uh, when you give the grade score what's going on with nitrogen problem with nitrogen is it's one of the systemic pollutants of the water and it's ubiquitous it comes from our bodies our pets bodies every time you excrete you're releasing nitrogen every time you burn a fossil fuel you release nitrous oxides into the atmosphere and they come back down onto the land or into the water and pollute and also from agriculture and suburban farms and lawns it's a it's a fertilizer and unfortunately both lawns and farm fields are what's known as leaky systems it's hard to have either the grass or the crops utilize all the fertilizer that's put on so some inevitably runs off into surface water or leaches down into groundwater and ultimately reaches the surface water as the groundwater moves in that direction. So what then can you do? I mean, you just described what the problem is. What's the right. solution? I mean, uh, obviously there has been, you know, I, yesterday, again, when I talked with uh, Mark O'Neill for the Farm Bureau, he talked about uh, no-till, uh, talked about uh, less use of pesticides and uh, fertilizers. But what is the ultimate answer? Right. So each one has a different strategy. Sewage treatment plants can be upgraded to the limit of technology. Septic systems can be upgraded. So that takes care of what comes out when we flush our toilets. In terms of suburban lawns, Pennsylvania is, we hope, about to join Maryland and Virginia to reduce the amount of nitrogen in home fertilizers and to restrict the use of home fertilizers between in the winter months when it's, when it's most damaging. And on the agricultural side, planting vegetated buffers along the streams 
is one of the best ways to reduce the runoff of soil, which carries the pollutants, nitrogen and phosphorus, into the water. And there are multiple state and federal programs to provide cost share dollars for farmers to help them do that. There are other things, like you said, no-till farming and other practices. But each of the various sectors have strategies that can be employed. We had a call here from Linda, a listener in Hummelstown. Uh, and Harry, I'll direct this to you because you were talking about the forested buffers. You said you're talking about planting trees. Trees take 50, 70 years and longer to grow. We have to stop cutting down. Uh, we have to stop cutting down by developing and redeveloping the towns that we already have. I mean, that's going on to another issue, something that we'll just ad- address with how we live our lives today. Uh, but what about what uh, Linda had to say? Well, she's right. It does take a while for those forest or barium buffers or any tree to actually reach maturity, and that's when it reaches its most effectiveness in terms of pollution reduction. But we know, and the science indicates, that those returns in water quality anyway alongside streamside forests happen relatively rapidly. Um, they They reach their maximum efficiency years later when the forest reaches its maturity. But it's a balanced approach. We have to restore and protect and that includes not only our streamside forests, but our forest covers in our rural areas, and as well as even in our downtown areas, where we can provide green canopy through trees and other things, so as to help ad- address some of the point source or, or stormwater pollution that's getting into our aging infrastructure and uh, sewer systems. We have a, a listener who sent an email asking a couple questions here. Uh, he says, I live in Lancaster County, which still has many active farms. Uh, And he has two questions. He says, how does the dirty gray water that farms pay to have trucked out of their farms get treated? And where is it treated? And he says specifically, like in the Mannheim area. And how is treated water used or returned to earth? Are you familiar with what he's uh, referring to? I believe he's referencing uh, manure hauling and the liquid manure that is part of the liquid solid makeup of that. And so a lot of times in very uh, animal intensive agriculture, they have uh, manure storage systems. And then they separate the liquids from the solids and they, it can be used as a type of fertilizer instead of like a chemical fertilizer that most people would put on say their lawn. And in Lancaster County and elsewhere where there's a lot of agricultural activity, there's actually an industry around hauling manure from areas where there's excessive amounts to where there's not enough to use it as a fertilizer. At the end of the day, it really is all about management. So if you're going to be utilizing that fertilizer, whether a chemical fertilizer or a manure-based fertilizer, it's about balance and managing it correctly so that it, it does not overload the system and the soils and the vegetation that's on that farm so that you're applying the precise amount in the precise location at the right times so as to feed that whatever it is you're trying to grow. And so typically in this scenario that was described, it's not that it's going to a wastewater treatment plant or anything of that nature, but usually is going to where it's needed and, and ideally should be managed effectively so as to not only serve the needs of that crop, but also not pollute the water. You know, there's been a great... Uh sea change, if you will, over the last uh, 20 or 30 years when we're talking about agriculture in particular. I mean, I remember when this all kind of started in the 1980s that there there seemed to be a great pushback from farmers in Pennsylvania, and a lot of it had to do with money. Where How are we going to pay for these improvements that we had to make? Uh, as the, the Farm Bureau says, farmers have done much of it on their own. Uh, as Mark said yesterday, part of it is that, uh, you know, farmers want the land to, to be, uh, you know, they want a healthy landscape as well. They drink that, 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 that same water. Are farmers are farmers on board? Can you say? I know that you can't say that one hundred percent, but Harry, are farmers on board with what's happening to clean up the bay? Yes, and in fact, I think what it, it takes is just like each and every one of us are individuals, and we have our individual lives and our individual concerns and situations. It takes getting sitting down and working with those farmers individually to figure out what is the the suite of things that they can do that that meet their needs because when those practices and those changes in the in their management are adopted and those conservation practices are put on the ground folks go home but they they have to maintain and manage it so what fits them 
and 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 also meets the needs of water quality and results in the beauty of many of these practices is that they actually have economic productivity returns on farm anytime you do anything that keeps nutrients and sediments on the land instead of in the water you're increasing the ability of that soil to be more productive or that herd to be more productive and that results in economic returns to that farmer as well as to all of Pennsylvanians. So when we in implement these practices and work with farmers to get these practices on the ground, we're, looking, we're working with them individually. Um, but the benefit is for everyone. Mm -hmm. uh, Will, I want to stay in the pollution area if we could. You mentioned water clarity a few times, but water clarity in 2016 on the report card still only got a 20, uh, a D minus, if you will, but it did uh, make a change of two points from uh, 2014. I mean, that still sounds like we have a water clarity issue in the Chesapeake Bay, but that it is improving. Your pal, Scott, uh, John Smith, Captain John Smith. Yeah. Apparently, he could see down 40 feet and see uh, oysters on the bottom in 40 feet of water. So we have a long way left to go. But this summer and last summer, seeing down four or five feet when 10, 15, 20 years ago in the middle of summer, you might not have been able to see down a foot, that was improvement. So things really are going in the right direction. We haven't had any years of very high rainfall in the last decade, so that's helped. But we see how quickly the system responds. And um, uh, I think a lot of effort is going into getting to a much higher grade for clarity, and it'll take some time. But we're, we're, we're optimistic. A couple other areas that uh, have not scored very well, and this is in the fisheries, uh, and that's oysters and, and shad. Even though both are up, they have improved a little bit, but uh, oysters and shad, oysters in particular, only a 10, and that's an F. And shad, of course, you know, I have to think that part of the, the shad problem uh, are some of the dams that uh, we have on the Susquehanna River as well. But what about oysters and shad? Yeah, and you know, the, the first dam, and you only need one on the Susquehanna, is in Maryland, the Conowingo Dam. It used to be magnificent shad runs all the way up to Binghamton, New York. It was a huge economic driver on the Susquehanna River. That That's pretty much all gone. So shad have a long way to go, and so do oysters. The, the, the amount of oysters coming out of the Chesapeake Bay at the end of the 18th century, or 19th century, um, was just extraordinary. You know, 20, 30 million bushels a year. We're down significantly, but again, it's improving. So, you know, I, I'm very much a glass half full person, and I'm just uh, really excited to see the improvement in oysters. We've put in Maryland and Virginia a lot of oyster ground into sanctuaries where harvest is prohibited, while still allowing other areas open for wild harvest. So. I think it's a great balance, and it's showing results. Let's take a phone call from Chris in York. Chris, you're on the air. Oh, hi. Good morning. Good morning. Um, I had a question that I'm wondering if you could provide some guidance for. Um, in York, there's a lot of townships that are trying to understand the value of stream buffers and forest buffers and maybe what they consider like a taking of land from people and future development. And there's different information about what's, an effective buffer with, I guess, as far as having it vegetated in various ways. So I'm wondering if you have any um, information you could share as to what's effective and what's not effective. And then also, I've seen visuals where they show oysters cleaning the water and visually making it clear very quickly. And I think, I guess I'm wondering, can you compare that to, is that what a stream buffer does as well, but we just can't? see it as well, or is there a visual that you've ever seen that can, can convey yeah, how effective this is? Well, you know, Chris, it is radio, but uh, <laughs> I, I, <laughs> I was thinking about ideas. <laughs> I know, I know what you're saying. Hey, thank you very much for your call. Two different questions there, and Harry, let me direct the one about uh, buffer width. Is she talking about how far apart trees are, are planted? No, she, she's talking about from the edge of the stream. Oh, okay, okay. How far up the field, if you will, or adjacent to that stream, do you need to go in terms of 
the science demonstrating what, what is effective at intercepting any pollution that may be coming off of that landscape. And before it hits the stream, how wide does that buffer have to be? And, and, and unfortunately, like m many things, it's, it depends. Um, but there's a lot of science around this effort, and, and based on some general assumptions about the design and how many trees and the density and things like that, uh, the apex, if you will, the, the, the minimum width in which maximum water quality benefits are had is about 100 feet. Um, but we know that we can really start to measure water quality improvements around 35 feet. And, and so in, depending on the situation, but depending on the stream, w around that range is the minimum width that you would want to actually have. Mm -hmm. uh, there are a lot of models out there. There's a lot of townships that have ordinances that, uh, that are to designed to protect or restore forested buffers and new development scenarios. We have a model ordinance and encourage Chris to contact us at our office. Uh, and we can certainly provide her with some information that would be helpful. Some for visuals. Visuals, that's an excellent suggestion. <laughs> uh, and, and I've denoted that, and I think we'll get to work on that. Uh, what is uh, your, your, how can she contact you? I was going to ask your, your website, and uh, how can Chris contact you? The easiest way is uh, jump on cbf.org.org. And uh, find our Pennsylvania office page, and it'll have the contact and get information for our office. So, Will, let me address the oyster question to you. You know, what I was kind of uh, picturing is these little oysters scrubbing uh, the Chesapeake Bay to make it cleaner. What about that? We have a bill in Congress to give every oyster a scrub brush, and that's, you know, full full employment for oysters. Uh, they, now, they, <laughs> it wouldn't cost that much. <laughs> so let me give you a visual. We do this on a lot of our education field trips with students. You take one aquarium and you put bay water in it that looks pretty murky. In another aquarium right next to it, you put the same bay water with half a dozen, ten oysters. Within about an hour, the water with the oysters is gin clear, absolutely clear as can be. Why? Because what has caused the one the, the, the bay water to be cloudy is either sediment or algae. Oysters will filter that water. An adult oyster filters 50 gallons of water a day. They will use the algae to make oyster meat, and they will compact the sediment and rele re release it as what are called pseudo-feces, not true feces, but pseudo-feces, compacted and put on the bottom. Both of them take the murkiness out of the water column, and they're great natural vacuum cleaners. Pseudo-feces. I really don't want to picture that, but I guess it's better than the real thing. Let's go with uh, Jim yep. in Edders. Jim, <laughs> Jim, you're on the air. Go ahead. Hi. I'd really like to piggyback on what he just said about the oysters. Uh, for years, the dams on the Susquehanna River have kept the eels from getting upstream. Part of the life cycle of the freshwater clam is to adhere to the gills of a eel, and they live there for two weeks and they drop off. That's how they disperse themselves. Well, the Susquehanna River has very, very few freshwater clams and mussels left anymore because of the dams. I'm an ex, I'm a retired DEP person who was in charge of working with the dams. And for the last several years, we were working very hard to get eels back up into the Susquehanna watershed because it is estimated if all the mussels would be back in the river, that water would be filtered five times before it got to the Chesapeake Bay, therefore arriving much cleaner and, and being able to help the, the bay a lot. But uh, it, the eels have been kept out of that watershed for almost 100 years now. Mm. second thing I want to talk about is he was talking about small farmers or farms before. We worked on a plan called the Manure Management Manual where – the farmer by himself, without any outside consultants, could look at his farm, map it out, figure out what crops he wanted to grow where, and apply the proper amount of manure on it so that that manure, as he said before, wouldn't end up in the water. It would end up in the land and on the crops. Thank you very much for your call and all your work with doing that. Uh, so, Will, what about those eels? You know, the, 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 for an environmentalist like myself and Harry, the, the dams, the hydroelectric dams, are really a tough one because clean energy from hydroelectric is a wonderful thing. But, boy, do those dams ever completely disrupt the ecosystem of the river. And so everything he said is absolutely true. Is there any way to reintroduce eels 
into the watershed. That's above my pay grade, Harry. Do you know? <laughs> there are ways to actually circumvent those the, the the obstructions of the dams, and it's sort of like think of it as uh, if you had a clogged artery. You know, you want to get in there and put in a stent so that the the blood flows again. Well, we can circumvent work around through fish ladders or even diversions that can be built so that fish and eels can get upstream, like shad and and those eels can get upstream so that they can do their ecological magic. Uh, what we need to do is figure out how to get that in and do it in the most efficacious way, in the most cost-effective way. The fish ladders, which have been the historical approach that some of these dams have had, including down in, in the Conowingo and elsewhere, um, haven't turned out to be as effective that, as we that's had That's what I was going to ask yeah. because, it, I mean, when we're talking about still having a shad issue in, in the bay and on the Susquehanna River, I mean, it's been years since those fish ladders were introduced on the Conowingo Dam. It just doesn't seem like uh, it, it, it's, as you said, it worked as well as what uh, was expected. Yeah, unfortunately, surveys have found that. And so if you can you can really think about ways of do, going around those dams and at uh, certain times of the year, making sure that there's enough water so that the shad or other populations can get upstream, and do what they need to do, uh, that science is emerging and the engineering around it is being applied in certain areas of the United States and elsewhere. You know, Will, and just a personal thing, uh, you know, I said in the introduction about uh, Captain John Smith sailing up the river, there's a historical marker in Port Deposit that talks about John Smith sailing as far north as, as Port Deposit. If you looked at the Susquehanna River today in Port Deposit, you'd say, how did he ever get here? Because in very many, many areas, it's very shallow. But that goes back to the Conowingo. That, that's one of the reasons that the Conowingo, or excuse me, Port Deposit doesn't have as much, as much water. But I, I see your point exactly that, you know, hydroelectric power, it's very clean, but uh, there, there are some side effects. Absolutely. And uh, that's that's the trade-off and the dilemma we all, as a part of society, face every day with so many issues. It's a balancing act, as Harry said before. Mm -hmm. All right, let's take some more phone calls. We have Brad and Duncannon also wants to talk about muscles. Brad, you're on the air. Hi. Um, yeah, I, I, I went on a couple of fishing trips to St. Lawrence, and I saw you could see 20 feet down, and there was a lot of aquatic life. And they attribute that to the zebra mussels, which I guess are inevitably going to invade the Susquehanna. Won't that solve a lot of our problems? That's my question. All right. Thank you very much for your call. Who wants to take that one? Zebra mussels are here, uh, unfortunately. And while they are voracious eaters and can clean the water, as Brad indicated, pretty effectively, what they do is they clean it too much of it, basically. And they outcompete other things that are important in this ecosystem, in the aquatic ecosystem. And as a result, the food and other things that those, those zebra mussels consume and, and overrun uh, in the aquatic ecosystem leave nothing left for everything else. The native mollusk populations, the native uh, species that live in these waters that have been here for millennia, that our ecosystem has established an equilibrium, if you will, around, now get disrupted and can no longer uh, live in these systems. And so while the water may be clear, uh, it unfortunately isn't healthy. We have an email here from David and may have the ultimate question uh, when we're talking about the environment. Uh, David asks, while the conservation on Pennsylvania waterways and runoff is very, very important, what's the impact of global warming as well? Has, have there been any benefits to the Bay from any federal environmental laws? And is there any controversy with the incoming president that can harm our Bay? Uh, Will, I'll let you address that. There are several questions there. Yes, one of the big water quality problems in the Chesapeake Bay and water bodies worldwide is not enough dissolved oxygen. Warm water doesn't hold as much dissolved oxygen as cold water. So for every degree increase in water temperature, you make your, the problem of dissolved oxygen that much harder to solve. There are many other aspects of climate change, from increased storms, um, uh, greater uh, variability um, uh, in terms of, um, of runoff, and all of that that uh, climate change and global warming contribute to make our 
job, our collective job, more difficult. Have you measured the temperature of the water in the Chesapeake Bay? And if so, has there been a change? Oh, absolutely. And I'll give you a very practical application. In Virginia, the primary underwater grass is known as eelgrass. It's pretty much at the southern end of its range anyway. And once the water gets above 80 degrees in the summer, eelgrass has a very tough time surviving. We're exceeding 80 degrees routinely in the southern bay waters now. That wasn't the case 20 years ago. Okay, now that's an example, but what about specific temperatures? Have you seen uh, the temperatures rise, you know, from, say, 75 in the summer to that 80 degrees? Exactly. Absolutely. And, And that's not just happening in the southern bay, but in the northern bay as well. Fortunately, in the northern bay, there are a number of other species of grasses that are not so temperature dependent. But yes, we're seeing much warmer water, as anybody who swims in the bay in the summer knows. Uh, we have an email here from Lisa says both yesterday and today on this program uh, keeps me mentioned that Pennsylvania farmers are doing improvements on their own without getting credit. I believe this is probably tied to only crediting those farmers who are taking advantage of government subsidies to make these improvements. The plain community, Amish, uh, do not believe in, nor will they take government subsidies. They may be slow to adopt some of the measures, but for those who do, they will not be on the radar because of not accepting the subsidies. Uh, Harry, I know this has been a challenge. It is, and we have programs, as do others, to try to help circumvent some of these challenges. Working with the Amish community is uh, something that we've been doing for a number of years. And any time that we work with an Amish farmer and, and actually help put in conservation practices on the ground, we are reporting those. So they are tallied in the overall ledger, if you will. Um, things that they may be doing on their own, it does become a challenge, and that, that's part of uh, the jobs of like folks like the conservation districts and others who are visiting these farmers on a routine basis to make sure that they're adhering to clean water laws that are applicable to all farms in Pennsylvania. Um, when they're out, they should be also collecting information about what's on that landscape. And if, that, if those practices exist, then reporting them into the overall uh, system, if you will, so that they do get counted for. But if you're right, if it, that has been the historical approach, that if someone, a farmer, takes advantage of cost share monies, then they, uh, that practice automatically gets tallied because there's a paper trail for it. Is there more, you talked about cooperation with uh, Pennsylvania farmers overall, is there more cooperation with the Amish farmer? Over the course of time, relations and understanding and implementation has been increasing as well. And we've been working with individual farmers, the religious communities and their leaders about the culture of stewardship that is very much part of the agricultural community, including the Amish and Mennonite communities. And so I would say that in in those communities as well, we're seeing not only increased awareness, but recognition and adoption. Let's take a phone call from Dennis in Chambersburg. Dennis, you're on the air. Hey, good morning, Scott. Good morning, morning, gentlemen. Thanks for uh, taking my call. Uh, This is a really good program. My my father actually worked for the Department of Agriculture about 30 years ago before he started his own business uh, hauling manure for farmers that he was working with. And, uh, you know, I can tell you that there are a lot of farmers out there that are really doing as much as they can to be stewards of the land. And... A few years ago, I had the opportunity to go down and visit uh, Hollyface Farms, <clears throat> Joel Sullivan, in Virginia, and he's a big advocate of no-till farming. When you look at his land compared to the land around him, the contrast is dramatic. In what way? I mean, his his land looks like the Garden of Eden. <laughs> I mean, there's there's lush grass, there are trees. You know, they don't have farm equipment that they're out tilling the land and, and plowing it, it's the animals doing the work. And, you know, his neighbors are what I'm used to seeing growing up in a in farm, generation's farm family. It's it's barren fields. It's rocks sticking out of the ground. There's barely any grass for the cows to eat. And, you know, for, for a long time, his neighbors thought that he was totally crazy until they started to see what was happening on his land. And just a few years ago, one of his biggest opponents, who was his direct neighbor, came to him and said, what you're doing is amazing. I want you to do it on my land, too. Mm-hmm. And Joel's farm is open for anybody, any day, to just drive down 
walk through it. They'll talk with you. They do more formal farm tours that they, I think it's 15 or $20. They'll actually spend a good part of the day with you and explain every part of the process, how they get the cows out to eat, you know, eat the grass down low, how they get the pigs in there to turn the soil over in the forest, how they get the chickens there to scratch, you know, the food out of what the cows have left behind and till the earth. I mean, it, it literally brought tears in my eyes to see what's happening there. Hmm. And it's really, really phenomenal. So I would encourage anybody that's interested in that topic to look at what Joel's doing and uh, just, you know, take a drive down there, see the dramatic difference. Real quickly, wh- fields, where, where, is that Dennis? where is that, Dennis? Uh, it's in Virginia. I, I can't remember the name of the farm, but their their website is polyfacefarms.com. Hmm. Okay. It has all the information about it. It's, it's a really phenomenal uh Dennis, it's about 15 miles southwest of Stanton, Virginia. Okay. All Great right. place. We only have about a minute or so left. Uh, Will, in about 30 seconds, uh, what has to happen? I mean, we have seen improvement at this report card. What has to happen to improve it even more? There's a federal-state partnership of all the states and many federal agencies that's been in place now for 10 years. It's taken gradual improvement from the prior three decades and accelerated that. The state-federal partnership has got to continue. So isn't that good news? We need to keep doing what we've done in the past, not create something new. Harry, about 30 seconds. What do you want to say? This is good news. Let's take a moment and relish in the fact that we're seeing the fruit of our investments today. The science has matured to the point where we know what we're doing is working. And we know now, through a variety of reasons, that we can actually do better. And if we apply a, a focused effort that really relies on what's called the three P's, the right working in the right places, implementing the right practices, and engaging the right people, we will be successful. Harry Campbell is the executive director of the Chesapeake Bay Foundation here in Pennsylvania. Will Baker is the president of the Chesapeake Bay Foundation. Gentlemen, thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you, Scott. And it is nice to get some uh, some good news on the front, uh, the Chesapeake Bay front. Coming up on tomorrow's program, a new report is out about right to work in Pennsylvania. <laughs> 